This is Claiming Your Voice with Janice Garrard. In this podcast, I feature guests with passionate stories of hope, inspiring others to claim their voice in a world where we can be bold together. Today, my guest is Shirley, and she is an interracial country adoptee, adopted from Korea in the late 1960s. Welcome, Shirley, and we are excited to hear your story about adoption and the experiences that you have lived. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was born in 1964 in Seoul, Korea. From the evidence I have, my mother took me to the Seoul Seventh-day Adventist Hospital and Sanitarium when I was roughly 16 months old, I believe. That's not verified, but just going by paperwork. On my mother's release form, it states that my father was um, military. He had been sent back to his country of origin, which I assume was the United States. And she was giving me up for adoption due to my Negroid features. And that was their word, not mine. I was adopted in 1966, uh, put on a plane and adopted by African-Americans here in Texas an African-American couple. The story they told me, one of the first stories they shared with me was that they gave me a pair of shoes. They put shoes on me and I would not let them take those shoes off because I guess I had never had shoes and I love these shoes. So it took them a little while, they said, to get me to get out of the shoes. <laughs> so um, did you keep the shoes? Do you still have them? No, I don't. I don't. My mother... Uh, passed away and a lot of the things that she had even some of my paperwork just kind of went with her I, I I didn't know she had a lot of things she was kind of somewhat a hoarder but I won't say it was a hoarder like what we see on on these shows but she kept a lot of stuff so there would have been a lot of things for us to go through when she passed away and um, we just didn't do that. Just a lot of stuff just had to be cleared out. There was so much. So were you raised as an only child or did you have siblings? Were they adopted? I had a or... sibling. I had a, a sister that I grew up with. She had been adopted from Korea from the same hospital and sanitarium um, two years before me. So since we went through the Seventh-day Adventist Hospital and Sanitarium, we were adopted into an Adventist family. So I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I was raised going to Adventist churches, Adventist private schools. I've never been in a public school system. I went to Adventist schools from kindergarten or preschool till I graduated high school. My parents were both very devout Adventist and they raised me or they tried to raise me as a black child. This was in part, I believe, due to the American government kind of telling parents to just assimilate, just raise your kids as American kids. Don't teach them about their culture or um, just raise them as American kids. And so like many half white Korean people were raised kind of just like white. They tried to raise mm -hmm. them as white kids. So 
in the Malaysian community, the Black and Asian or Black and Korean, it was the same way. They tried to raise us as Black kids. Not that that was a bad thing, because many of us identify. I identify as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. I want to embrace all of my, I am half Korean, 24% Sub-Saharan African and the rest European. So I want to embrace all of that. So I just consider myself a woman of color. I think the American government had a lot to do with why many of us were not introduced to our Korean heritage. I didn't really start embracing my Korean heritage until social media. When I started hooking up with other Korean adoptees on Facebook was when I started embracing, okay, you're not just a black woman. You're not just, and of course, I didn't even really know I had the European blood until I did 23andMe. My parents had always told me, you're black and Korean. That's it. You're black and Korean. Because they didn't know. DNA didn't exist. So when I did the 23andMe about 10 years ago was when I said, ah, that's it. That's where I get my European features. Because I you know, when you're raised to be a black child, but you look in the mirror every day, I had black friends. I didn't look like my black friends and they let me know every day that I didn't look like them. So I had black people telling me I wasn't black enough. I had white people telling me I wasn't white enough. <laughs> and then the occasional Asian that I, I might would run into maybe in a store or something or they would tell me, oh, you don't look Asian. So all my life, I was kind of told what I didn't look like. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, then the sister that was adopted, she was Black also and Korean? From what we know, I don't know. I don't talk to her anymore, unfortunately. Um, but she looked a lot more Korean than I did. She was very tiny in stature, and she had much more slant to her eyes than I did. I always had these really big eyes, you know, and it would throw people off because many people believe that there's one certain look to an Asian person. And we know now that Asian people look all different kinds of ways, right? <laughs> we can have darker skin, lighter skin, curlier hair, coarser hair, straighter hair. It's not just one look that we were all brought up to believe that uh, Asian people only look like this because that's all we saw. We, right. we didn't even have Asian representation on TV. We had white people pulling their eyes back or right. to make themselves look. I think there was a movie that John Wayne did where he tried to make himself Asian. He was playing an Asian. <laughs> we didn't have proper representation of what Asian people really looked like, especially when I was growing up. So I grew up in Texas. I grew up in what would be considered the South, even in the deep South. So it was very black and white when I grew up. There were not a lot of mixed people, not even mixed black and white. I was very much an oddity. <laughs> I very much was like the green thumb, or not the green thumb, but the thumb that stood out. I wasn't black. I wasn't white. I wasn't Hispanic. And in Texas, that's about what it what it came down to. You were black or you were white or you were Mexican. Okay. So you said I wasn't that, any of those. 
but you said that the kids that you hung out with, I, they let you know that you weren't black enough. Yeah. So yeah. To, um, to that, I'm, how did that um, affect you then about for self-identity and how, oh, you know, how you horrible. saw yourself? It was horrible. I'm 58 years old and I can say for the first time in my life, I'm comfortable in my own skin for Good the very for first time. Growing up though, it was so difficult and it was so difficult because both of my parents were obviously black American people. There was no light skin, you know, with what, what black people say, oh, you're light skin with good hair. Um, my parents were obviously black people and I looked nothing like them. So I got a lot of slack because of that. Well, why are your parents that though that's not your parents? And I would have to explain to everybody I'm adopted. I'm adopted. I'm adopted. I had black friends. I had many black friends. I had many white friends. The, the schools I went to were predominantly white. The black community, though, when I say I wasn't dark enough, it was because back in the, the 60s and 70s, there was this whole thing of light skin with good hair mm. that you, you weren't allowed to date people outside of your race. So there might have been the black boys that like the lighter skin girls with the good hair it's this whole it's a whole stigma thing within the black community between light-skinned black people and dark-skinned black people it's always been there um so with me being that i also had these what they would say exotic features i was always called oh you're so exotic you know a lot of asian women were called exotic and they still are <laughs> and they still are so that's what people would say is, but you're so exotic. And so being that I couldn't mirror anyone else, I didn't look like anyone else. It was very difficult. It was very difficult to fit in anywhere to um, the white people. I wasn't white enough. So I, I describe it like this. I was too dark to be white, too light to be black and two other to be Asian. So I fit in nowhere. And that was very difficult. My parents didn't understand it. They didn't understand how to help me. And they really did not help me with that at all. Because I guess they just didn't know how. They didn't even know how to approach the subject when I would come home in tears and say, these girls are being mean to me, or they're making fun of me because I'm adopted, or they're... Uh, they're pulling their eyes back and making fun of me going ching chong, ching chong. You know, I, I did have that happen to me as well. I had racism from just about every end. I had black people that would accuse me. Oh, you're trying to be white. You think you're white. Then I had white people that would literally call me the N word because my parents were, were black. And then when it came to Asian people, I can't say in my earlier years that I suffered any racism from them, but there were a lot of times we would walk into a store and older Korean women would recognize me as being Korean. And they would ask my mother, is she Korean? And my mother would say, yes, we adopted her from Korea. And they would have this wonderful conversation. It wasn't until I got older and it just happened just recently at my job where I worked where a younger Korean woman 
came in. I asked her, I says, are you from Korea? She says, yes. I says, so am I. She looks at me in shock and says, you don't look Korean at all. And for someone that grew up with identity crisis, I can't say that that didn't, that it didn't bother me when people would say, you don't look Korean at all because yes, I do. It depends on who you ask. It depends on what day it is. It depends on, have I been out in the sun and I've gotten a really dark, deep tan? Is my hair straight this day or is it, am I just letting it go crazy and curly today? I can take on so many different looks of nationalities. I have lots of times that I have people come up and speak Spanish to me. I've been mistaken for Japanese, Chinese, Hawaiian, Philippines. Uh, so... I have this, which I'm proud of now, a universal look. I've even been mistaken for white. I've been sitting in a crowd of white people and they never knew a difference. They never, they never took me for anything but a Caucasian female. I think that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That is very (laughs) amazing. It's almost like you're, you're a chameleon. Yes. Yes. You can take on And you said that you're proud of of that. You're proud of that. I am. I am. In many of my photos, um, I do look different in many photos. Um, You've seen a photo of me and you kind of was like, who's this person? (laughs) So, yes. So um, as a child, though, it was very difficult. And I grew up with a lot of depression, as many adoptees do. By the time I was 18... I had tried suicide twice. I realize now that it really wasn't me being depressed as far as, as much as it was the people around me were kind of the, the environment, things that were happening was making me feel this way. It was making me feel less than I wasn't worthy. I wasn't black. I wasn't white enough. I wasn't Asian enough. As the years went on, When I started connecting with other Koreans was when my depression started floating away. I think that connection that I had of being able to tell my story and someone else understood, that was huge. Mm -hmm. It was huge because you probably know too, when you talk to people that can trace their families back to the 1700s and they know they came from General Custer, you know, (laughs) when you tell them that my my legacy stops here besides my children they kind of look at you like deer in headlights they just don't even know what that means when i would say you know i would give my right arm just to have a picture of my mother just so i would be able to look at that picture and say oh i have her nose i have her jawline i have her lips i have her ears i have her Just that little connection alone, people don't understand that because when you know your family and particularly a lot of people don't like their family, right? they have (laughs) huge families with all these cousins and stuff. And a lot of them, they don't have any connection to them where adoptees, we would give anything to have that ability to look at someone and say, oh, okay, I look like her. My hands are just like her, just any of that connection. So it was very hard as a child to know where my place was in this world. Not even just a child. I think even as an adult, I think up until a few years ago, when I really started seeking therapy and really wanting to heal 
and wanting to, uh, being tired of being tired and being tired of being sad and being tired of walking around with this hole in my heart. I had to literally just make up in my mind that I would never find family, that my children would be the end all and be all. And that was fine because I have two incredible kids, but I had to kind of make up in my mind, okay, this isn't going to ever happen for me. Mm-hmm and be comfortable with it. And I was, and now we have some new things going on, which I will Mm -hmm. share that might be actually leading me to my mother and father. Okay. That's exciting. It's exciting, but I'm, I'm keeping my emotions intact because I don't, I don't want to get so excited and then, then just be disappointed. That's happened before as well. So you did the DNA test and uh, you had shared with me that you found a distant cousin So do you want to talk about that? On my father's side, my father is showing up in DNA of being sub-Saharan African and Eastern European. So DNA is ancestry, is getting me in touch with first, possible first to second cousins. These first to second cousins are somehow related to my birth father. And then just here recently, Ancestry has shown me on my mother's side, a young lady that shares DNA on my Korean side, which is very exciting because 23andMe just put me in touch with some Korean cousins, which I am Facebook friends with, but they are distant. They're third to fifth cousins. So this young lady that just recently popped up on Ancestry, it looks to be she is my half niece. Mm. I've just recently found out that her mother is alive. Her mother is half Korean and Maya, her grandmother is alive. And this grandmother of Maya might be my mother. Might be your mother. So we're just waiting for verification of that. This woman is still alive. And the interesting story of that is this is how adoptions, the the adoption agencies messed up a lot in translation. I don't know why they wouldn't have had Korean people working for them to help translate. So five years ago, I found out that they made a mistake that my birthday that I had celebrated my whole life as April 2nd was wrong. The adoption agency got it wrong. I was actually born August 2nd. So I found that out a few years ago. Also, this woman that could possibly be my mother, on my paperwork, it named her as Soon Chung, S-O-O-N-C-H-U-N-G. This woman... Her name is Sun Chung, S-U-N-C-H-O-N-G. So where they got my birthday wrong, it's really a possibility that they got her name wrong. Mm -hmm. And they also might have gotten my name wrong. I had someone look at some of my adoption paperwork years ago, and they were not positive, but they said, Shirley, I just don't think your mother's name was Soon Chung. We don't know what it was, but this does not say Soon Chung. So I knew years ago that there was a possibility that they got the name wrong. Mm-hmm. So literally, if she had been looking for me, or if I was looking for the wrong person, she was looking for the wrong birthday. If someone had come across 
me, they would have been looking for an August 2nd birthday and I was listed under April 2nd. Mm, So there, you know, there goes one of how the, the adoption industry and that whole machine messed up so much paperwork that years late and a lot of it was falsified. Now mine wasn't falsified. I believe mine was just a mistake. I think the American hospital there just didn't read things right. They didn't translate it right. April looked like August to them. I mean, August looked like April to them. I don't have verification of this yet. It's very exciting. I just, I'm trying to keep my emotions intact here um, at the possibility that I might have found my mother and this woman is still alive. And living here in the United States. I wish you the best on this journey. Thank you. Thank Um, you. Yes, because the next step is going to be to contact her or will you have a mediary contact her? Well, Bella Seagal, who is a Korean adoptee, she's helping me with this. She's she's looking into this. She's very excited. Um, This is something she does in helping reconnect families. And... The way the DNA is reading, there is no mistake that I am related to this young girl. There's no mistaking that at all. So for it to just be a crazy coincidence would be really nuts. Um, This is what Bella does for a living. So she's pretty sure that this woman may very well be my mother. And I'm just waiting to find out. I mean, I've waited 30 years, so I can wait however long it takes them to contact her and verify. There was a red vase that my birth mother sent with me. She left with me and my adopted mother kept it safe in a china cabinet before my mother passed away. She made sure I got that vase and I still have it today. It's sitting right back there. I sent Bella a picture of this vase because this is going to be a verification. If this woman says, yes, I did leave in a vase with her. I did leave something mm-hmm. with her. So we'll see. We'll just wait and see on that. That's that's another podcast. <laughs> yes. We'll have to do another one so that we can find out about your journey. Yes. To kind of close this one out, do you want to talk about your naturalization and the status yes. of that? So a few years ago, I went to the social security office to get a replacement social security card because I had misplaced mine. The lady sitting at the desk, it took her so long and I'm getting impatient. And she says, I can't give you your card. And I said, what? She says, you have to prove your status in this country. I did not know what that meant. She didn't even really know what it meant. She says, I don't know. I says, I was adopted here. I was adopted by American citizens when I was almost two years old. I mean, as a baby. So she suggested that I hire an immigration attorney, which I did right away. This immigration attorney then did find out that I was not a naturalized citizen. My adopted parents, for whatever reason, and it's not even important, is why they didn't do it because they're not here. It doesn't help me to hash why it didn't happen, but it didn't happen. So I found out I was not an American citizen, which was devastating. I then went to the Korean consulate in Houston and told them of my situation. So I wanted to get as much information from Korea as I could. Well, come to find out, I was listed in the Korean registry as a baby. 
I'm still in that Korean registry and I am still a Korean citizen. So they sent me a Korean passport that I have now. I can travel out of the country, but it's devastating because I am American. <laughs> I was raised here. I love this country. Thank goodness I never voted. I just, I mm -hmm. never got around to voting for different many reasons, but that would have been devastating because that is means for deportation. If you vote and you're not a citizen. Now, of course, I didn't know it. So I don't know what would have happened there. But that's not something I have to deal with. I have been a permanent resident in America since 1966. So this attorney just updated my information to where I have an updated permanent resident card. I can work. I can. I'm here legally. I can do everything legally here. But I want my American citizenship. I deserve my American citizenship. I was brought here as a child against my will by American citizens and adopted by American citizens. Mm -hmm. So right now I feel like I'm a woman without a country. I mean, I'm a Korean citizen, but I know nothing about Korea. I couldn't go there and live and flourish. I wouldn't know anything about the country that I was taken away from as a child. I worked with the adoptee rights campaign went to Washington a few years ago to try to get bipartisan support for the adoptee rights campaign, which is just simply saying if a child, not just Korea, international adoptees that were brought over as children and adopted by American citizens, we deserve to have our citizenship and we shouldn't have to jump through hoops and spend thousands of dollars to obtain something that should be rightfully ours. We were raised in American schools, American churches, American homes. We are American. I probably know the Constitution better than most American-born Americans. Um, it's something that I still want. I don't have thousands of dollars to go spend to try to get my citizenship. And I shouldn't have to spend thousands of dollars. I have American-born children, and I deserve to belong somewhere mm -hmm. at 58 years old. Yes. Um, yes, you do. So, and, you know, I'm going to insert right here about the Adoptee Citizens Act that they're trying to get mm -hmm. passed. And yes. I'll put in a plug for Adoptees for Justice, which is an organization that advocates for this. That might right. be a source for We don't for really you. even know the number because there's so many that are hidden. There's so many that don't even have permanent resident status. They can't work. They can't, you know, uh, get loans for school. They, a lot of them didn't even know. A lot of this came around after 9-11 when things changed. So a lot of us had no idea we didn't have citizenship. I've heard of uh, people that went to try to get scholarships or, or uh, grants or help going to mm -hmm. school and they found out they couldn't get it because they weren't citizens. They had mm -hmm. no idea. There was a woman that had been married for 50 some years. She tried to collect her husband's social security and they wouldn't give it to her because at 60 something years old, she found out she was not a citizen. So many of us just didn't know. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, if we knew, we would have been screaming about this years ago. Yeah. And I think that was the fault of all of these adoption agencies and people who process those. Absolutely. That, you know, they they didn't saying, follow through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They didn't follow through. They didn't do what they were supposed to do to make sure that our parents knew mm -hmm. 
that Mm -hmm. once the adoption was done, that wasn't the end. And I think a lot of parents thought that once the adoption was finalized, they thought that that automatically made the children citizens. And it didn't. It was a separate, it was a whole separate thing you had to do to get Mm -hmm. your child naturalized. Yes. As a citizen. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the, the Adventist organization or whoever was supposed to stay on top of it. They just didn't. I'm one of the lucky ones that was able to just update my information and I can work and and do what I need to do mm-hmm. to, to live. But there's many whose paperwork, let's say, was falsified. So they can't even get permanent resident status because they don't really exist because those birth certificates or paperwork was all false. It was all fake. Well, I think and what we so- need to do is make sure that we're calling our legislators And especially now that, you know, these midterms are over, we know who's going to be in place. We need to start hitting this hard, so to speak, for this advocacy to get this act passed, to get that. um, We do. The situation recognized. Mm -hmm. I'm really hoping that like someone like me, I'm not just this distant adoptee that nobody knows about. You know, most people would never, ever believe and they don't know the situation. I'm telling it now that I don't have my American citizenship. Most people don't even know that. So I'm hoping in me speaking out and saying, yes, even me is struggling to obtain my citizenship here in America, that hopefully it'll put a voice to it and it'll make more people want to come out and tell their story. I'm in no danger of being deported unless I go and commit a horrible crime. Mm -hmm. But it's always in the back of your mind of the, the... atmosphere or the in this country of how they can feel about uh illegal immigrants or you know daca and and the the whole atmosphere can be very unsettling sometimes for for a person like me that says what if what if Mm -hmm. they did start trying to round up people that Mm -hmm. didn't have citizenship they've done kind of things like this before in the past i do have faith in our system still some (laughs) left that we can help you get your story out there and uh, get the story to the legislators that need to be changing these policies. For a long time, I was very afraid to show, I was very afraid to share my story, just, you know, kind of like a shame. It was a shame for me to say, I don't have my citizenship, Mm -hmm. but now I don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't care what people say or what they think or what they think of me or why didn't you work on this sooner? Why didn't, you know, I don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. The story just needs to be told. Mm-hmm. And I need to, right. to let people know it's okay to come out and say, this happened to you. This was not a fault of my own. That this was correct. not something I did purposely. Mm-hmm. This was something that the government didn't look into. They didn't follow up on. They didn't make sure. And now here I am as an adult saying, hey, I want my citizenship. Mm-hmm. I deserve it. We're at the end of this. And um, yeah, I see. Can, uh, I see. Yeah. So we're going to have to cut it off for here. But okay. thanks for being a guest. And we're going to have you back so we can find out about the um, possibility of you finding your mother. Yes. And I just want to say thank you to you. Thank you for giving us a platform. Thank you you for, you know, I've wanted to share my story for so long. And I thank you so much. You are so welcome. 